Open your Bibles, please, to Romans 12. We'll come to the text for the morning in just a moment, but I'd like to pause for prayer once again. Our God and Father, you are the great King. We have worshiped you in song, in scripture reading, and in prayer. You have given us words and truth that fills our heart and overflows in our prayers and our praise to to you. We believe you. We trust you. We love you. But our hearts are anxious and fearful with so many things about us on this day. And we often feel that we are pressed beyond the limits of our human strength. We wonder if we can continue like this as a nation, as society, as, as nations of the earth, how much we need you. And today we call upon your name for rescue from evil of all kinds as it manifests itself globally and in large-scale conflicts like we see and as it manifests itself even in those private secret places. Oh God, have mercy upon us. Our sin is great and our world is in great distress because of our sin. Would you please bring the power of your spirit and the power of the gospel to bear upon our souls that we may ultimately find eternal peace. Bless the dear church on both sides of that conflict in Ukraine. Bless the assemblies that have already gathered for worship today, some in very small groups, fearful that their lives are in danger today. Some mourn the loss of family and friends in recent days. And from the human perspective, it seems senseless. And we know that you are not oblivious to it. Precious in your sight is the death of any saint. And while most of those churches have already gathered uh, as best they could to sing and pray, to hear the word preached and taught, to share even the sacred table that we will come to in just a little while, oh Lord God, we are asking that your blessing would rest upon your people and that the word of truth would go out in great power and that thousands would be converted, that our dear brothers and sisters in Christ would be strengthened on this day and that their, the eyes of their heart would be opened, first of all, to, to see again that great love that you have for us. So let the cross be powerfully visible to them. Let the presence of the Spirit be powerfully known to them. And as your church collectively around the world on this day cries, how long, O Lord, how long until you come and take vengeance on the evil one and all his horde? How long until you vanquish every enemy and cause every knee to bow before you? How long until we see justice and righteousness, equity and truth established in this world? How long until we see you? We pray that from faith, believing that it will be soon. So come, Holy Spirit. Come again, Holy, Holy, Holy Spirit. Give life and light to us as we are in need of it. Give power and comfort to each soul here. Give repentance and assurance as they are needed. Give strength and peace. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friday morning's headline uh, captured my attention, one of the news outlets, and here, here was the headline. Inflation, war, COVID, pandemic, pushing U.S. stress levels through the roof, poll says. The poll found that unhealthy behaviors associated with COVID-19-related stress are still lingering. Yeah, no duh. 
Um, but this is, this is part of the reason that caught my attention further. Uh, the, the quote, stress in America poll, like they've been doing this poll since 2007, conducted annually by the American Psychological Association, found that more adults rated inflation and issues related to Russia's invasion of Ukraine as stressors than at any other uh, issue asked about in the poll's 15-year history. Not surprised by that either. The number of people who say they're significantly stressed about these most recent events is stunning relative to what we've seen since we began the survey in 2007, says the chief executive author, uh, officer, Arthur C. Evans, uh, who, whose team conducts this, this poll. And listen to this, and this is what you would see on the, the screen here, and maybe it will come up in just a moment. Americans have been doing their best to persevere over these past tumultuous years, but these data suggest that we're now reaching unprecedented levels of stress that will challenge our ability to cope. That's a little alarming in and of itself. If this were it, like if all we could do is conduct polls and kind of like encourage one another uh, with what little knowledge or expertise or perspective we would have, I mean, there really is no hope. But as the people of God, there's a totally different framework through which we see and hear and experience life as it's unfolding at the moment. We've been looking at Romans 12 for a number of weeks took a couple of weeks off, obviously, over the last two weeks, but we're coming back to it today. And as one author writes, there's a comprehensive picture unfolding here, and at the root of it is Christ's love. We were singing of that by design, because underneath this Christian ethic that Paul has been laying down in chapter 12 are the multiplied mercies of God. That's chapters 1 through 11. And one of the things that the Lord tells us is that we are loved eternally, unconditionally, Loved because of who Christ is, loved because of what Christ has done. And so our love then is a reflection of that. And this is something that the world is desperate for at this particular moment, is it not? So big picture is this. God is doing a transformational work. He's doing it chiefly through the life, death, and resurrection of God the Son by the power of God the Spirit. And we are recipients of this transformational work. So our relationship with him, first of all, is transformed from one of rebellion and hostility to now we're at peace with him, Romans 5. He, he has shown his love and we respond in love. Our relationship with one another in the context of the church has also undergoing a transformation. And it, it has moved from that place where before Christ, we were divided in all kinds of ways. Some of them big, some of them not so big, but it's everything from your ethnicity to your background to your social standing to your economic class. But Jesus Christ comes in and he just erases all of that and he makes of, of, of people who are so diverse one body, one family. And in other places of the New Testament, it, it actually says straight up, so there's no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We're all one. But he's also transforming our relationship with the world. And, and we are not people driven now by fear and suspicion and cynicism and panic. No, we're actually governed by the love of God. And what he's about to say in the following verses uh, is really quite transformational when it's lived out in the way he intended. We are called to be a countercultural group. 
not by virtue of protests and standing in the public square and you know, you know, making sure everybody knows that we're against this or against that. No, it's a countercultural ethic that's lived out first from our hearts and into those personal relationships that are all around us. So we, we really are ambassadors of Christ's peace. And I love this little picture, both for the variety and the age represented there. And I was thinking, uh, even as this is not directly out of Romans, we are gonna read that and get to the text here in just a moment. But you know, the Lord himself said, unless you become like little children, you will not see the kingdom. And that's part of the transformation that he so humbles us and brings us into this place of sweet reliance upon him. In many ways, the church is childlike. So I hope that that visual image even will, will reinforce that we're ambassadors of peace. We take great delight around this place with all the little ones. And yeah, they can be high maintenance at times and demand our attention, but what a joy. I'm sure glad that those back rooms right now are bustling. And some of our children are still here. I actually see two moms in the lobby right now doing that, you know, rock and swaying thing with babies. Let that be a visible reminder, really, of what kind of people we should be. Let's go to Romans 12. Um, I'm going to read verse 14 and then skip to verses 17 through 21. I told you a couple weeks ago we're leaving 14 for later. Well, we're getting to it today. The Lord says, bless those who persecute you, Bless and do not curse them. Now verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What a, what a powerful word and a timely word for us this is. And as you look at verse 14 and think of what is entailed there, that we're actually called of God to bless those who persecute us. That is, we are called to invoke God's blessing over people who actually create suffering in our lives. The idea of persecution is not just that somebody comes to attack you because you're a believer. It includes that, but it actually has to do with those who just are in the business of harassing others. There's an interesting little uh, wordplay here, if you will. Back in verse 13, if you, if you look at that with me for just a moment, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So we've, we've done some translation, remember, from the Greek into the English, and what we translate as seek to show, uh, it's the same term that we turn around because there's a little different nuance in the English, but the same terminology is used of those who persecute. So here's a, here's a very clear and strong contrast being made between those who are actually seeking to harass the followers of Jesus and those who are seeking to show hospitality as the followers of Jesus. But now he moves it outward, and we're not simply seeking to show hospitality to those within the household of faith, but he uses this word to bless. That is that we are actually 
Praying would be a very specific application of this, but we're actually invoking God's blessing over people who are making our lives hard. And just so we're clear on this, he says, don't curse them. There are times where you feel like praying for God's curse on people. Sometimes where imprecatory prayers are actually ordained of God. But I think because Paul is talking in the day-to-day relationships that we have, whether it be in the context of the community or government or a work situation, there are people who, because you are a follower of Jesus, don't like it, are going to seek to make your life uncomfortable. And God says, you can't return in kind what you're receiving, but I actually want you to be blessing those, invoking my blessing over them. Jesus said something similar in Matthew 5, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In Luke's gospel, the words of our Lord are recorded. He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. That's countercultural. What does ordinary society do today? It says, fight for your rights. Protest in the public square. You go give them a piece of your mind whether you do it in person or you put it on social media. I mean, we're, we're not gonna take it anymore. But actually the Lord says, I do want you to take it and not just reciprocate evil for, never reciprocate evil for evil, but turn it into prayers of blessing. What is the greatest blessing an enemy could experience? Let's talk about that for just a moment. Conversion. Grace scandalizes human sensibility, doesn't it? In the first century, one of the greatest persecutors of the church was named Saul at one time until Jesus arrived. Knocked him off his horse, put him on his face, blinded him temporarily, and said, no more will you persecute me. Remember how Jesus personalized that when he confronted Saul? Why do you persecute me? Well, Saul wasn't thinking about, I'm, I'm doing Messiah harm. He just doesn't like the Christians. So he's on the road, going to do more violence and, and harm to them. But Jesus stops him cold in his tracks, converts him, and repurposes his life. And we know him as Paul, one of the greatest evangelists, church planters, missionaries ever. That's what, it, what ought to be in our hearts as we pray for our enemies and say, God, would you bless them? You can't stop at the point of like, you know, God, bless them with good health and you know, all the Christmas presents they could ever wish for this year. No, God, convert them. They're hurting us. They're hurting your church. Convert them and recruit them then into your gospel church. So we are called of God to bless those who persecute us. Second of all, we plan to do what is honorable. Look at verse 17. First of all, believers don't do paybacks. We're not about that. Jesus tells us through Paul, repay no one evil for evil. That would have to do with punishment based upon what a person deserves. So we're not saying that you know laws and, and courts of law don't matter. No, we're talking about in personal relationships and and he recognizes that we actually receive evil. That's, that's a simple term. It's broad in its use. It has to do what is morally objectionable. We would all find it to be evil, but he's saying don't pay back evil for evil. We don't do paybacks. But here's the thought. Believers actually promote 
what is good. And we plan for it. That's what is tied into this concept of give thought to do what is honorable. That is, you need to be thinking ahead of time. It's almost like we're supposed to develop a playbook of sorts to anticipate. And one of the criticisms for our administration right now is that they just continue to react to what's happening and people wonder, is there really a plan? Well, the Lord is saying to his people, I do want you to have a plan. I do want you to actually give some thought to how you could, you could anticipate being sinned against by other people. Yes, it's evil. Nobody's acting like it's not hard or it's not real suffering or it's not genuine harassment. But he's saying, what I want you to do, though, is to give back something of a different kind. We're called to live lives that mark a clear contrast to all the morally objectionable product of this world. As followers of Jesus, we are people who are positioned by his, uh, by his love, by his transformation in our hearts to strategically plan for, to produce, and even promote what is good. Think of the good gifts and tools that are at uh, our disposal for you individually, for us collectively. Um, your generosity, Matt touched on how you've, you've given um, you know, in the context of, of the church offering, but I'm, we're also aware that so many of you just give. It doesn't even like get channeled through gospel hope. We just hear stories continually of, pe- of people saying, um, man, somebody showed up and gave us or helped out with this particular need. But even beyond that, gospel hope has made an effort to serve the community through a difficult time. Uh, it's not something that happens every day as a, as a church, but the spirit is there, and we just need to, to fan that, fuel that. So here is the countermeasure to our suffering at the hands of others. Number three, we pursue peace as possible. Look at verse 18. If possible, I learned the King James Version many years ago, as much as lies within you, live peaceably with all people. And so what Paul is saying here, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now I want you to think, first of all, of how God himself is a God of peace. We know that from many places in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 14.33 tells us that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Colossians 1.20 tells us that God has made peace by the blood of his cross. What an extraordinary sacrifice has been made in order that we might be at peace with him. So he works powerfully, not just to pursue peace, but to establish peace in relationship with sinful people like us who deserve nothing but condemnation and judgment. So let's back all the way up to that point uh, where we can rejoice again and say, oh, that's right. First of all, God has made peace through the blood of his son. And I can know that I am at peace with him. Well, that means that we're now people of peace. Live peaceably with all means that we are called to pursue harmonious relationships and freedom from disputes. And you know, we we operate from a position of strength because God himself in reconciling us to him individually has also actually reconciled us to one another. Now that doesn't mean there aren't issues between us that need to be talked through or worked out. Forgiveness needs to be extended because day by day we actually sin one against another. But the cross is what makes the difference. And at the foot of the cross, we can look one another in the eye, be honest about our sin, own it, acknowledge it. And and when there's not a sin issue on the table, 
then we can actually get, show deference one to another and make room for differences of opinion and practice. We'll come to this in Romans 14, uh, a number of weeks out. But it is remarkable that we're not only in right relationship with a God of peace, but that we are people of peace. And he wants us to do all that's within our power to maintain it, to seek it, to establish it. A couple of passages that are really helpful. One is Ephesians 4, where the Lord brings some other truth alongside this concept of peace. And I want you to pay attention to what Paul writes here. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And what would that look like, Paul? Well, now very specifically, with all humility and gentleness, open, uh, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If peace were easy to maintain between ourselves and relationship, you wouldn't find multiple commands in the Bible that tell us we ought to pursue it, maintain it, seek it. It does take some work, but it's not hard work when you first humble yourself at the foot of the cross and say, oh, that's right, I didn't deserve this extraordinary gift of love and righteousness and grace, the salvation that I have. But I have been blessed in this way, so therefore I'm positioned to humble myself with respect to other people. James 3, 17 and 18 is also helpful for us. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I think sometimes we're far too committed to personal preferences. I'm sure of it. It's true for me. It's true for you. And part of it is we like what we know and, and we like that comfort that comes from, from feeling secure and settled and like, yeah, I'm just, don't, don't mess with my stuff. And in the context of life, people are always messing with our stuff, messing with our ideas, messing with some of our, what we, what we might even say, well, they're my core convictions. But you know what? There's only one God in the universe. You're not him, I'm not him. And I don't have to be God in anybody else's world. Part of seeking peace is knowing what things really are worth fighting for and what things you just turn loose of. Again, I'm I'm so excited to get back to Romans 14 and into the first few verses of 15 because it gives us some very specific illustrations and application. But look at what the Lord is saying here in James 3. There's like this, there's like this constellation of attributes that come together. And you can be sure that if we are not practicing this kind of gentleness, open to reason, if we're not seeking to be people who are full of mercy and good fruits, that the peace factor is gonna suffer. Because you don't get one of these without the others being in place. And the hope that the Lord gives us through James, verse 18, is if we are people who are actually sowing peace into relationships, into our church family, in, into our biological family, a harvest will come. It will come. 
So those are the kinds of things that are within our power. It's in my power to respond to someone with gentleness. I can speak the truth in love, but I don't have to be angry and aggressive or hostile or you know, hyper-defensive about it. And if they choose that there's not gonna be peace between us, well, that's, that's on them. And so that's where Paul uh, acknowledges that while this is something we are all to pursue, there are limits. And it's deeply frustrating. It can even be hurtful and painful when, when another party will not be reconciled, no matter what kind of appeals you make, no matter what kind of concessions uh, you give to them, they're just not gonna receive it and be at peace. Well, it's not on you anymore then. It's on that other individual. It's a countercultural ethic, though, isn't it? Number four, we counter evil with good. Almost said it again, didn't I? We entrust ultimate justice to God. First of all, verse 19 tells us, never avenge yourselves. That is, don't take revenge for a perceived wrong, but leave it to the wrath of God. You let vengeance and that work of avenging be his. And now, Paul actually quotes an Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy 32, verses 35 and beyond, where the Lord himself says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I've got actually a page and a half of cross-references, most of them from the Old Testament, where God actually describes his vengeance. And one of the things that struck me this week is that for us to, for us to take that place is not just to say to God, uh, I want your job, but actually would, would, would sell vengeance short. Do you know why? Because you and I don't know enough, we're not creative enough, powerful enough, wise enough, or just enough to bring true vengeance to pass. Here's part of the reason I say that. I read some of the things that God says he will do to his enemies one day, and it causes me to tremble. I actually read some passages and say, I would never think of doing that. But God did, and he will. And we, with good intentions, might think that, well, there's a wrong that's been done, and something needs to happen, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna wield the sword of justice on God's behalf. Oh, you, you will come short of what sin deserves. Listen to just a couple of examples. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, after he has said just a few verses prior to this, vengeance is mine, I will repay, he actually says, uh, verse 39, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. Right? It's not you, it's not me, we don't even come close. I kill, I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Well, there's another factor. You and I might pursue vengeance, but, you know, the perpetrator might get away. No, not from God. Verse 40, I lift up my hand to heaven and swear. This is God himself. As I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my, listen to this, I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. And then the response of the people of God, rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. 
He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. There's another passage, and I'll just read this without comment. Isaiah 63, verse 3, where the Lord, in describing his vengeance, says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. The passage goes on, but those are graphic. God treading over his enemies in righteous vengeance to the point where his garments are blood drenched. You see what I'm saying? Like, I don't think we have the wisdom, the power, the creativity, the capacity to bring about that kind of vengeance, but God does. And you may rest in the truth that nothing escapes his understanding, nothing escapes his sight. His vengeance is comprehensive in a way that we cannot fully understand or appreciate from our finite perspective. His justice exposes the heart and soul level motivations. You see, we see what people do. We don't really know what's going on in their hearts, but, but his justice goes to the core of a person's being. And his prosecution uncovers every corrupt imagination, every secret scheme. And he does not merely avenge the act of sin, but repays the offender to the full. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And, and in Romans 12, he's actually saying, you leave room for me. It's a gracious way of saying, get out of my way. You're gonna show up with a little toothpick kind of thing and try to poke your enemy. That, that's what human vengeance amounts to. And God says, please step to the side. I'm about to unsheathe my sword. Now look at verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. What an extraordinary act of grace that is. We counter evil with good. Who in their right mind would do this kind of thing? Well, Jesus' people in their right mind do this kind of thing. And it's gonna result in one of two things, I think. Either that, that countercultural gospel good that's flowing out of us is gonna become so powerful, so convicting, that what the one who was before the enemy of God and even maybe our personal enemy is humbled and converted you know, so it's kind of the Saul to Paul metamorphosis, or it actually adds to the, the judgment and justice of God that they experience one day, where God actually says to them, not only did you rebel against me, but, you know, the people that you were harassing did good to you, and you, you remained hard in your heart. And so the final word here for us, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As always, you see the shadow of the cross in the back, don't you? The cross of Calvary is the ultimate act of overcoming evil with good. It's the place where Jesus took our sin and made it his own. It's the place where he bore the wrath, was made the propitiation, as we read just a few moments ago. I love the lines of that new hymn that Keith and Kristen Getty have written. We've sung it here. We're not singing it today. I wish I had thought of it sooner to request it as Andrew put the last pieces of the service together, but it was coming into my mind this morning as I was reviewing these scriptures, the power of the cross 
And the lines that were coming to my heart and mind were these, oh, to see the pain written on your face, this is Christ's face, bearing the awesome weight of sin, every bitter thought, that's every bitter thought of mine and yours, every evil deed that you and I have done, all of that crowning his blood-stained brow. This, the power of the cross. What is the power? That Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath, and now we stand forgiven at the cross. So when the Lord says to us, do not be overcome by evil, he knows. His, his work was the ultimate victory as, heaven, or as hell was not able to overcome him in that hour of his suffering and death, but heaven was open for us because he overcame all of our evil with the good of his death. 